0: Heavenly Father, as we approach Revelation chapter 7 this morning, I ask that you would give us that guaranteed and that great hope of heaven. That hope of your future presence. That hope of your eternal protection and provision. That hope of knowing that one day, Lord, we will never thirst and we will never hunger again. I ask, Lord, that that hope would be so real to us that it would shape the way we live each and every day. That it would, in fact, compel us to live holy lives for your glory. That it would enable us, Father, to stop chasing after all the worldly things that we think will satisfy when, in fact, we know they will not. I ask, Lord, that this hope would shape us, enabling us not to be cowards, afraid of suffering for the sake of Christ and the gospel. This hope that tells us that one day, Father, you will protect and provide for us in such a way that there'll be no more tears and no more grief, that we will be in your presence. And with that hope, Father, we can live now for the sake of Christ, suffering and sacrificing for the gospel. We know our glorious end with you and with Christ and with the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us this morning the faith to believe it and then live in accordance with it today and every day until you call us home or until you come again in glory. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, my beloved, let's open up to Revelation chapter 7, if you have not already. Revelation chapter 7. I don't know about you, is your Bible starting to make its way there yet? Mine is. It's starting to open up to that part of the Scripture. still wants to go to Acts, but uh, we're working, we're working a, new, a new fold in here. Revelation chapter 7. I hope you were here last week to hear Revelation chapter 6 because 7 builds upon it. If not, go back and listen to it. Um, I had a chance to and I was very encouraged by it. The title of the sermon is Salvation Belongs to Our God. And I know that's not original. That comes directly from the text. But you'll see why I titled the sermon that after we start making our way through um, chapter 7 in Revelation. Um, Most of you know that I'm a pilot, and when you're learning to fly, every aspiring pilot has to go through their first solo flight. That moment when your wheels leave the ground and you realize that you have to bring that airplane back to Earth alone. And if you don't do it, then you're probably not going to survive. When the boys were little, I used to take them flying. When they were really little, I would let them put their hands on the yoke and they thought that they were actually flying the aircraft. So when we would come in, and we'd enter the pattern, and we'd turn base to final, and then we'd touch down, and they thought they were landing the airplane. And they would come home, and they would tell Mom with great excitement, I landed Daddy's airplane. Lori would smile at me, knowing full well I landed the aircraft, and the only reason that we were safe on the ground and back at home again was because I was the one who did it. My beloved, as we look at Revelation 7 this morning, we're going to see... That it is God and God alone who ensures that we make a safe landing into the eternal realm. It's his work and it's his doing. He is the reason that we will be delivered from the judgment we saw last week. And he is the reason that we will dwell in his presence forever and ever. In Revelation chapter 4, if you remember, we were ushered into the throne room with the Apostle John. And we got a chance to see all the heavenly hosts bow down and worship the one seated upon the throne, declaring him what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And if that wasn't enough, we we got to enter into Revelation chapter five and we got to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, take the scroll out of the Father's hand. And at that point in time, it wasn't just the angels, if you remember, all of creation joined in, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All of creation joined in to worship the Lamb of God who was worthy to take the scroll and worthy to fulfill its contents. And those contents were the completion of God's creation, fall, redemption, restoration story. And then we started in Revelation 6 and we began to see Jesus what? He starts opening the seals one by one. And with each seal that he opened, God's judgment came upon the earth. And first we saw, if you remember, the four horsemen and they were symbolic for war and famine and poverty and plagues and death that would come as God judges the earth during the church age and then as we saw last week as Kirk had a chance to preach from the end of chapter 6 we saw that final day that that last day of judgment the the wrath of God and the wrath of the lamb coming once and for all to bring the kingdom here and it's described by John with language to reveal how horrific that day is. And he describes it by talking about the unraveling or the decreation of the physical world. Look at verses 12 and 13 in Revelation 6. He calls it a great earthquake and the sun turning black and the moon becoming like blood and the stars falling out of the sky to earth. It was a day and will be a day so utterly catastrophic that all the inhabitants of the earth, look at verse 16 in Revelation 6. They'll call out to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who was seated in the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? And that's where we are left with that question. Who can stand the day of the Lord? And of course, the answer is you're right. You're shaking your heads. No one can stand the judgment. No one can come into the presence of God and expect to make it through that without being eternally condemned. So if you left last week a bit discouraged, I pray you were not, it was an encouraging message. Revelation 7 is the answer to that. Revelation 7 is the hope. It is the only hope of not being condemned with the rest of the world on the great day of judgment. And so I'm so glad you're here to hear 7 in response to 6. God shows John through another vision, What does he show them? The way of salvation. He shows mankind how not to be judged on judgment day, how to make it through that there's a way for us to actually be saved. And so this morning, what I'd like us to do, we're going to look at the whole chapter. Remember, I'm trying to demystify Revelation for you. You say the whole chapter, it's so complicated. There's so many details you have to talk about. Not really. It's actually a very simple chapter and talks about a few basic things, which we're going to look at. One who will be saved? It tells us. Number two, how will they be saved? It tells us. And number three, what blessings come to those who are saved. So who will it be? How will they be saved? And what's the good news? What, how do we end this great story? And so I pray that you are able to listen with all your might this morning. The theme of the sermon is this. God, not man, saves sinners for his glory and our satisfaction. God, not man, save sinners for His glory and our satisfaction, our joy. So let's take a look at point number one. Who will be saved? First one, Revelation chapter 7. John writes, after this, after the vision of the wrath of God of the great day of judgment, after this, John says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, the four angels standing at the four corners, they were charged by God to oversee his plan, his execution of the scroll being opened. And he sees these four angels holding back the four winds of the earth. That is the sixth seal. They're holding back the judgment from coming. There's going to be a delay here. And they're holding that final judgment back. Look at the latter part of verse one, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. That is... The judgment will not come until God has permanently and perfectly sealed His people for salvation. That's all that's saying. Look at verse 2. John writes, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. Now that word seal, you talk about debates in the context of the book of Revelation. That's certainly one. The word seal in the Greek is a word that literally means to... Uh, affix a signet ring so the kings would take wax and they would use their signet ring to authenticate a particular message or to show ownership. It'd be no different than you when you sign a legal document with your name and you're buying a car or you're buying a house. The same thing here. This, this seal is that signature of ownership. Now we don't have to guess what the seal is. We're actually told in Revelation chapter 14 that the seal is what? The seal is the father's and the son's name written upon the foreheads of God's people. So I love it when the Bible tells us what the things actually mean. So we don't have to guess. So the seal is the Father's name and the Son's name written on the foreheads of the people. Now you're thinking, wow, that sounds really weird. Remember, it's symbolic language, right? So we're not thinking literally. The, he's not saying that you're gonna have Yahweh tattooed or Jesus Christ tattooed literally on your forehead. It's symbolic, meaning what? Well, you know what it means. It's the relationship that you have with the living God. God belongs to you. You belong to God. You're his children, sons and daughters of the faith. And the promise here is that God's saying, I'm going to seal you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I'm going to what? I'm going to protect you from the day of judgment. I'm going to bring you through. Now, my beloved, listen. Listen. If, if, we, if we believe that this language is symbolic and that's what the seal means, then I want you to be cautious when you engage in all the dialogue that I hear Christians talking about what the seal means. Recently, I've heard that this seal in the context of the unsaved, the symbolic 666, is the COVID vaccine. Now, that's hysterical and very, very sad It's not the COVID vaccine. It's nothing here that's taking place. It is God placing his claim on his people. Don't overthink it, all right? Look at the latter part of verse two. And he, this is the angel now with the seal of God, he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth. Those are the four standing in the four corners. And he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so, again, this is very simply saying, let's not bring the final judgment until all of God's people are what? Are saved, until they're all secure in the plan of redemption. Now, that imagery of a mark being placed on the forehead, that actually comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. This should not be foreign to you if you know your Old Testament prophets. Uh, During Ezekiel's time, judgment was coming upon Jerusalem. And, and God sent a sage to go and to put a mark on the foreheads of all those who were faithful. And those who were faithful were not, did not experience death. They actually were saved from the judgment that came upon Jerusalem at that time. Now, it's similar. Those in the book of Revelation who have God's name upon the forehead are in contrast to whom? Those who have the name of the beast on their forehead. And again, I don't want you thinking literally. It doesn't have Satan's name. It doesn't say Beelzebub or 666, literally. It means those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. And again, that's all that it means. Sorry to burst your fantastic bubbles that you've been working with. So it's symbolic language. Believers, non-believers. Saved, unsaved. Okay? But the, the emphasis here is not... So much the seals, it's the magnitude of God's salvation. And this really is the the, the essence of the first point. God is trying to show John that he's not going to just seal a few. He's not just going to save a few. He's going to save many, many upon many. Look at verse four. John says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he delineates those, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from Reuben and Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon and Levi and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were all sealed. So you have a lot of people being sealed, being claimed by God to be sons and daughters of God. Now again, our dispensational friends, they believe that that 144,000 Are the number of Jews that will be saved during the seven year tribulation at the end of time? Um, I obviously do not believe that that's an accurate rendering of that number. The number is not literal, it's symbolic, as with most numbers in the book of Revelation. Most commentators believe that the 144,000 represent all Jews and all Gentiles saved between the ascension of Jesus Christ and his second coming again in glory. In other words, it's the church. It's the church throughout the history of the church. The 144,000 represents this magnitude, this number, which is so big. Now, there are reasons to argue, I believe, good reasons. I'm just going to give you a few because there are several. But good reasons to believe that the 144,000 is not a literal number talking about Jews, that it is indeed talking about Christians, Jew and Gentile followers of Jesus Christ first reason is the New Testament identifies followers of Christ as what? Abraham's seed, the true circumcision, Galatians 6.16. The Israel of God is attached to the church. So there's compelling reason in the New Testament to believe that it is, in fact, speaking of the church throughout the history of the church. The list is also very, very peculiar. There's no other list of the tribes like this in the Old Testament. Um, this one actually starts with Judah which was odd, but you say, well, why Judah? Because the Messiah came from Judah, which would indicate the church. It also leaves out the tribe of Dan, and and Dan was known as the most idolatrous tribe in the Old Testament. And so the list is peculiar also. It wouldn't be a traditional list pointing to the 12 tribes of Israel. But most importantly, we want to go back to the context of the scriptures to understand it. John tells us what the 144,000 are in Revelation chapter 14. We're not there yet but this is what he says, and he clearly defines it as the church. In Revelation 14, he describes the 144,000 as those who will stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb, having the Father's name and Jesus' name on their foreheads. My beloved, every true believer in Jesus Christ will have the Father's name and Jesus' name symbolically on them because they are his children. Not only that, we're told in Revelation 14, the 144,000 are those who have been redeemed from the earth who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Well, when you talk about the redeemed who follow Jesus Christ, you're talking about Christians. You're talking about the church. The 144,000 is symbolic for the church of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile saved throughout the history of the church. Okay? Okay? Now, what's so amazing about this is not, we get so fixed on the number. It's, you know, it's the number of Jews who will be saved. It's the number of Jews who will come through in the seven-year tribulation. The point here is that it's going to be huge. Many, many, many souls that God will save through the blood of the Lamb, sealed and protected from the day of judgment. That's the point that God is trying to make with John. Boy, how we missed that point, don't we? So he first hears this 144,000, and then he sees them. Look at verse 9. Did you notice that? He hears about them, and then he sees them. Verse 9. After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So the first thing is he hears about this 144,000, this magnificent gathering. And then he turns and he sees the gathering. And it is fantastic, right? So it's not, it's not this the Jews in the seven-year period. It is the church, the great multi-ethnic multitude, too numerous to count that will be sealed by God and saved by God from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And where are they? They're around the throne. They're in the presence of the living God. And this is what John is seeing. In other words, my beloved, it is the fulfillment of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham, was it not? That God said to Abraham, through you what many nations will be blessed. It is is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy when he talked about the many nations, the many people from many nations that God calls to a saving grace. And so John saw here The end of the story. He saw the gathering of the church around the throne of God in the presence of God the Father and in the presence of the Lamb. And what's so extraordinary is they're standing there, what? Unscathed. They're in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God and they're unscathed. They weren't unraveled. They weren't undone like all of creation. They weren't judged like all of creation. Not only were they not judged, they're alive and they're well and they're worshiping. Look at the latter part of verse 9. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. You hear that? They think, oh, that's Christ entering the city. Remember his Passion Week as they called out Hosanna in the highest? Well, they're doing that now in the heavenly realm. They have their palm branches. They're crying out. Look at verse 10. Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so they're worshiping God in white robes. Now, we know, we know what that means, right? We know that they are Counted righteous before God. They are sinless. They are pure. They're able to be in the presence of a holy God. No longer deserving of judgment, but instead made fit and given access to the holiest of holies to Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the myriad of angels. They're able to join in with the angels. Look at verse 11. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And you say, wait, that sounds just like Revelation chapter 4. And you're right. Almost verbatim. But what's the difference? In Revelation chapter 7, they're saying it and singing it with the church. It's not just the angels. Now it's the angels and all of God's redeemed, all those who have been sealed by God, all those who were clothed by God in righteousness, now in the presence of God, worshiping God together. So we have God's response to the end of Revelation 6. We have God's movement when the question was asked, who can stand the wrath of God? God says, no one, but I will intervene. And so he does. He seals and He makes righteous the 144,000, the innumerable multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He makes them fit. He brings them into His presence. He gives them palm branches, and then they cry out. They sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. You want to escape judgment? You want to be made holy, righteous. You want to be brought into the presence of God. You want that to be your end. Then God must save you. If there's one salient theme we have from the beginning, Genesis, to the end of this particular book, it's that the Lord saves. It's God who saves. Not you, not your good works, not your religious activity. Certainly you not being here on Sunday morning. It's God who saves, His work, His grace, His love, His choosing some to be saved, not because any of us deserve to be saved, but because God is pleased to be glorified in the saving of many, of many, my beloved. Now, if that's true, what a great hope that should provide for all those in your life that do not know the Lord. What a great hope What a a great motivation for you to go and share the gospel with family and friends. We're coming upon Christmas next week. Some of you are gonna be sitting with family members at a dinner table that do not know the Lord, and you can be thinking to yourself, he saves many, he wants to save many. What a great opportunity for you to participate in that great work of the Lord, that multitudes coming to him. Not just a few, but millions upon millions from every tribe, tongue, and nation for His glory, for our well-being. It should motivate us here in our mission fields and it certainly, as we give now to the Lottie Moon offering, it should motivate us to equip and send out and maybe go ourselves to bring this great hope of God saving many to the nations. It is truly a glorious picture of God moving to redeem millions for His glory. So we know the who. Who? Who will be saved? The millions upon millions that God seals and makes righteous. The question you should be asking is how? I mean, it's one thing to say that God saves millions, but how, how does he do it? How, how do we get in? How do you get in? How did I ever get into the kingdom of God as a sinner such as I am? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. How will they be saved? As a non-believer, I used to struggle. I used to struggle with the idea, Christians told me that God is gracious and God is loving and God is kind and God is compassionate. And I thought, you know, if God was so gracious and so kind, then he certainly would not send anybody to hell. I was a universalistic atheist, if that makes any sense. I thought to myself, if God is real, if God is real, then it must be heaven for everybody. He can't judge anybody, and he certainly can't send him to that place you Christians call hell, because if he does, that's not a God I want to follow. That's how I used to think as a non-believer now, as someone saved by grace through faith, I realized I had the question backwards. I was asking the wrong question, right? I shouldn't have been asking, how can God judge sinful man? I mean, he, he is holy, holy. Holy. His judgment of the wicked is not only necessary and reasonable as we saw last week and good, but we are deserving of it. I shouldn't have been asking how God cannot save everybody. I should have been asking what? How can God save anybody? How does God, who is holy, 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 save anyone like us who are sinners through and through? That's the question I should have been asking before I came to a saving grace. How can God, who is holy, populate His eternal kingdom with sinners like you and me? Well, that's a great question. That's a great question. It seems that the Apostle John needed some clarification on this point as well. So if you are thinking, hmm, how is that possible? John wanted to know as well. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders, you remember the elders of the 24 angels seated around the throne. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So John's given a pop quiz here, right? He has this vision and he's got this question. Verse 14, he said, I said to him, said to the angel, sir, you know. So one of the 24 angels asked John, Who are all these people with all these white robes? And where do they come from? I love John's answer. Sir, you know. That's a polite way of saying, I have no idea. I have no idea, but you do, so impart your wisdom and tell me who these people are. And the angel does. Look at the latter part of verse 14. And he, the angel, said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And so the angel answers in reverse order of his question. The first thing he tells John is where they came from. These are the ones coming out of what? Of the great tribulation. Now, again, that's another term that's debated much in the context of the book of Revelation. It is a technical term. Um, If you remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, he was prophesying to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Rome and he talked about the great tribulation. In the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel talks about a time of trouble um, that God will come and save his people in Daniel chapter 12. But in here, in the book of Revelation, I I believe personally, and and I think it's verified in the text, that it's referring to, the tribulation is referring to God delivering his people throughout the history of the church from the great tribulation we experience in the history of the church. In other words, the great tribulation is everything that takes place from Jesus' ascension until he comes again in glory. And you are the ones, my beloved, that must make it through the great tribulation, the tribulation of your own life the pain and the suffering that comes living as a sinner in a fallen world. Maybe the persecution you receive for professing Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe the sin that is causing you to turn away from Christ. Maybe the temptation to forsake your faith. These are the great temptations and tribulations that we struggle with. But Daniel promised, and he was right, that God will rescue his people from it. Now, my beloved, if all the trials and pain and suffering We go through, if all the tribulations that come from living as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that hates Jesus Christ and hates His church, if this is what we're delivered from, then we must know that God delivers us for a purpose. You say, well, it must be for His glory, of course. But it's also because He desperately, passionately loves us, He loves His people. He seals us out of love, and He makes us righteous out of love, and He brings us into the context of His throne room out of love. In other words, my beloved, no matter how grievous, no matter how grievous your tribulation gets on this side before you make it into the eternal realm, you can know that as a sealed, made righteous son or daughter of God, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Absolutely nothing. No tribulation. Paul, as you know, you probably know this passage in Romans chapter 8, he poses a similar rhetorical question, does he not? He asks, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's talking about the life of the Christian that we experience here before we see God face to face. Paul says, no, in all these things we are what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul says, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're sealed. You've been made righteous. You can't get out. What a glorious problem to have. Can't get away from the love of God. What a great encouragement this must have been for those Christians suffering under the brutal reign of Emperor Domitian. What a great encouragement this has been to our brothers and sisters throughout the centuries who have given their lives, who have given their families in order to follow Christ. Knowing that nothing, nothing can break the seal. When God places his seal upon you, It's permanent. Nothing can reverse the righteousness that you've received in Jesus Christ. If He's made you righteous in Christ, you can't become unrighteous in Christ. It's God's doing because what? God is the one who saves. Salvation belongs to whom? To our Lord, to God. You say, well, you still haven't answered how, Pastor. (laughs) You're skirting the question. You told me that God is able to keep us into the end. He's able to keep all those. But how does he do it? How does he get us in? How are we as sinners allowed into his presence? latter part of verse 14 gives you the answer. They have those who have been sealed, those who have been made righteous, those who are in the throne room worshiping God with the angels. They have, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they, the great multitude that John sees, they've been rescued from the great tribulation. They've been rescued from the day of the Lord, the wrath of God and the Lamb, and they've been delivered into His presence. Because they had what? They had washed their robes. They had made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You say, that sounds so weird. How do you make something white by using blood? Blood makes things red. This doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't for us because we cannot make ourselves clean, but the blood can. The imagery here is so powerful. The white robe symbolized our righteousness, the purity, right? So sin is gone. He said, well, name it. that's good news because if, if we're sinless creatures, then we can come into the presence of God, right? His justice is no longer at odds with my sin. Sin's been removed, so justice is no longer mine. I get grace, I get mercy, I get God. You are right. You are right. The tension between justice and sin is removed. For whom? For all those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. You say, I still don't know what that means. So in the Old Testament, if a Jew committed a sin, they were to bring an offering. If they were able to, they would bring a, a bull or a goat or a sheep. If they were able to afford it, they'd bring that to the priest in order to be sacrificed. And then that, that sacrifice, that blood being spilled, that animal's blood being spilled, would be spilled in their place. Listen, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life So in order for the sinner not to be killed, someone else's blood has to be spilled. In the context of Mosaic Law, it was the life of an animal. That animal's life would be shed and the sinner's life would be spared. Now what most Christians don't remember, and because we really don't like to read through Leviticus much, if we're going to be honest, we just don't like it. But what we don't remember is actually the really important role that the person bringing the offering plays in the sacrifice. I don't think we would do well today with it, my beloved. Let me read to you. This is from Leviticus chapter one. This is what the person bringing the offering has to do. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering that's on the head of the lamb or the goat or the bull, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. And then you are to slaughter the bull or the lamb before the Lord. So not only was the offerer responsible for taking the life of the animal, for spilling the animal's blood so their blood could be spared, but they were to lay their hands. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's describing it as placing their hands upon the head of the animal with force. Not to hold it down, but as a means of transfer. In other words, the, the person seeking forgiveness was placing their hands, just like the scapegoat, was placing their hands on the animal And saying that animal's life instead of mine, that animal's blood instead of mine, I want forgiveness. You punish the animal instead. And so by placing their hands, it was symbolic of the animal's fate becoming their own. They deserve death because they had sinned, but the animal gets death, and they instead what? They get forgiveness and they get life. They get life. You say, well, that's old covenant, that's Mosaic law. Why are you telling us this? It's the same for us, my beloved. Did you notice that? Look at verse 14 again. Those who are sealed, those who are in the presence of God, wash our robes and make them white in the blood of the lamb. You say, well, Are we going to be reverting back now? Are we going to be bringing cattle and sheep and goats into the sanctuary and murdering? No, no, the lamb is Christ. The lamb is Christ, but you still must wash your robes. You still must come to the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and wash your robes in His blood." What does that mean? That means that our righteousness in order to enter into the presence of God must come from Christ. Our righteousness cannot be our own. It can't be anything that you do, my beloved. No good work, no good deed, no act of mercy, no career, no education, no intelligence. It must come from the Lamb. It must come from His crimson blood that flows from the cross. And that means, my beloved, when Jesus bore our sins in full on the cross, he received what? He received the great tribulation of God the Father. He received it in his flesh, the Scriptures tell us. The full, eternal wrath of the holy, holy Lord God Almighty on Christ. The Lamb's sacrifice, the Lamb of God's sacrifice is able to atone for our sins. That word atonement, is able to pay for, to clear our debt, and that's all of our sins, my beloved. In other words, his atoning sacrifice is able to make white robes for sinners like us, for all who bring our lives to Christ and say what? Make me clean, make me clean because I'm unclean. Look at the latter part of verse 14 again. All those who wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb, friends. When you, when you take your sin-saturated, rebellious robes, which are symbolic of your sinful lives before God, when you take them, you bring your sin-saturated life to Christ, putting your faith and hope in God to save you through the work of Christ, not your own merit. You're putting your hands on Jesus, just like they did in Leviticus chapter one. You're putting your hands on the Lamb. You're claiming faith in Christ to save you. To make you what? To make you clean. You're putting your hands on the sacrificial lamb Jesus, whose blood flowed on Calvary, and saying by his blood, I will be washed clean of every single sin. Not just forgiven, my beloved. Not just forgiven, that's glorious. But every single sin washed away. Washed away, everything. Every sin of thought, every sin of tongue, every unloving action, all your idols, all your self-centeredness, all your glory-grabbing, His blood has the power to permanently and perfectly wash away every single sin. So what? So you get a white robe. You say, oh, I need that or I'm not coming in the presence of God. It's so extraordinary. Washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb to make us clean. We lay our hands on Christ by faith. And in so doing, our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is given to us. So when the father sees you in Christ by faith, he sees the holiness of his own son. Truly, truly extraordinary. Now this is key, my beloved. It is God who seals you. It is God who gives you the white robe of righteousness so that you can come into his presence. But he does all this through the vehicle of faith. It's God who saves but he saves through faith. He saves by compelling you, calling you, equipping you to do what? To put your faith and your hope in the blood of the Lamb, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He does this by calling you to place your hands upon Christ and say, Christ is mine. He is my Savior. He is my only hope. It's you saying yes to God, satisfying his justice against Jesus instead of you. Laying your hands on Christ is saying yes, that you have no righteousness of your own and receiving freely as a gift the righteousness of Christ that grants you access into the throne room, into the presence of God that enables you to participate in all the joys and the blessings that come from life with God. Fit to dwell in the presence of our Lord the hymn that we love to sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then we say what? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me what? White as snow. Oh, precious is the flow of the blood. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's how, my beloved. That's how you enter into the presence of a holy God as a sinner saved by grace. All right? She said, All right, I know the who. The who are those who are sealed and made righteous by God. Now I know the how. I got to wash my sin saturated robes in the blood of the Lamb by faith. I got one more for you. Are you still with me? Listen, I didn't sleep one minute last night, and I got tons of energy. I don't know what that's about, but I'm very thankful. I was worried I was going to make it through this. So you got to perk up. You had more than one minute of sleep, I'm assuming. Well, blessings come to those who are saved. Now, certainly we must say it is, it is an unspeakable blessing to not be judged by God on the great day of the Lord, right? I mean, that, you say, I, I like that a lot. I don't want to come under the wrath of God. We, we must agree with that. We must rejoice over it, that, that you will not be punished in the lake of fire because you put your faith in Jesus. But the end of God's story, the end of his redemptive story isn't... isn't Millions of people getting set free from e- eternal damnation in jail and then just wandering in the streets of a, of a strange, sinful earth still. It's not that. It is being set free. It is not being condemned and not being judged, but it is so much more. It is God calling you to come into his presence and to dwell in his presence to what? To worship him, to serve him, to love him, to be loved by him, to receive His protection and His provision forever and ever. No more tribulation. This is the end. This is the consummation of the story that God wrote for sinners like us. Look at verse 15. John says, therefore they, that's the the great multitude now, the 144,000, the great multitude, sealed by God and adorned in white robes, therefore they are before the throne of God. They are with the Father, they're with the Son, they're with the Holy Spirit, they're with the myriad of angels, and they're worshiping Him. Look at the latter part of verse 15. They're there to stay. They serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. So this is no temporary gig. This is eternity. Sinner saved by grace in the presence of the living God. In fact, that word shelter in verse 15, it, it reads so much better in the Greek. It literally means to tabernacle over, right? You're, you're covered by the protection and provision of God Almighty. You're inside, and you're never getting out. Protecting us, God will, from ever experiencing suffering or pain or death again. No more tribulation. The tribulation ends in the redemption A sinful man, look at verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. You say, well, what's that from? Verse 16 is actually from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10. And Isaiah was talking about how God would lead the second exodus. Remember the first exodus, leading God's people out of Egypt. The second exodus was leading God's people out of Babylon. They had been cast into Babylon as judgment. In 586, and this is leading them back out. It's the second exodus, and God is promising to what? To protect them and provide for them as they make their way back to Jerusalem. Isaiah 49.10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he has pity on them and will lead them to so by springs of water he will guide them. And so this is taken directly. Lots of plagiarism in revelation from the Old Testament. That's okay. You can plagiarize God's word in God's word. But revelation is a picture of a permanent protection and a permanent provision. Permanent protection and permanent provision by God. I, I want to stop and just imagine that for a moment. Imagine a life with no fear because you're perfectly protected and no dissatisfaction because you're perfectly satisfied, you're perfectly provided for. You say, I, I don't know what that would look like, Pastor. Pastor. And if that's you, that's not uncommon. 70% of Americans today identify themselves as being a fearful people. 70% of Americans are fearful. You say fearful of what? Fearful of just about everything. Terrorist attacks, this is in a survey. Government corruption, pandemics, odd. Uncertainty, economic collapse, job loss. Fear upon fear upon fear permeates the American culture, even though, my beloved, we're one of the safest cultures in the world today. Hmm, interesting. At the same time we're filled with fear, Americans are out today consuming at record levels with money we do not have. The third quarter, the third quarter economic statistics, I know how much you love economics from the pulpit. Third quarter, credit card balance in the third quarter of this year hit a whopping 930% Billion dollars collective credit card balance in this country. That's near an all-time high. My beloved, fear and dissatisfaction, they're wrecking balls in life, are they not? They lead to anxiety. They lead to unhappiness. They lead to this endless attempt to consume, to satisfy, and yet never satisfied. What a glorious end in Christ. To be free from fear and hunger and thirst forever. That's the picture here. Perfect protection, no more fear, perfect provision, no more thirst, no more hunger. And that's what John sees here in this model. Safe and truly satisfied. A whole new humanity. A new creation. A new people. Hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine. But try to imagine it because it should impact the way we live now. The question that I had was how does God execute this glorious promise to forever protect and forever provide for his people? My beloved, verse 17 is such a precious verse and I don't think I really sat on this until I had a chance to prep for it this week. It just makes my heart sore. How does God do it? How does he protect and provide for his people for all eternity? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be what? Their shepherd. Their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You say, wait a minute. It says that the lamb is the shepherd. That's weird, right? Well, it is, because shepherd, lambs need shepherds, except for Christ. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and in so doing, he becomes what? Our great shepherd, our good shepherd. But what's so extraordinary about this is he doesn't just shepherd us here on earth. He shepherds us forever. Jesus is your eternal shepherd. We will follow him and he will do what? He will lead us to springs of living water coming out from underneath the throne as we will see. And that means, my beloved, guaranteed satisfaction. Perfect satisfaction. No more thirsting, physical or spiritual. No more heart longing not being fulfilled. You know what that feels like. That's hard. You want something. You don't get something. You can't get it. Every dream, every hope, every unmet aspiration filled by God in Christ and overflowing, overflowing in Christ. And then, and we're going to get this to again, we're going to get this actually two more times because the story recapitulates itself. God promises to what? Probably some of the more tender verses in Revelation to wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know know what that means, my beloved? That means you're not going to be mourning in heaven. All the pain and and struggle you experience here on earth, it it won't be there. It'll be a distant memory, like a dream. And you'll you'll remember, you'll think, yeah, but it won't cause any mourning. It won't cause any pain in the eternal realm. And it can't because you're what? You're in the presence of God where there is the fullness of joy. If you're in the fullness of joy... There can be no pain, no suffering, no tears because all your sin has been removed and now you are able to enjoy God and be enjoyed by God without any barrier, no obstruction to experiencing the fullness of joy. All right. Can I give you 3 quick takeaways? Can I? Are you going to ready you ready to leave? Okay, good. Number 1. In light of this great, I mean this is this Again, these chapters are just so over the top that you should be going, this is too good. It's too good, but it's true. First takeaway, if your end in Christ is not simply escaping judgment, which is good, but it's more than that. It's dwelling in the presence of God where there is the fullness of joy. It means, my beloved, that we can stop chasing after all those things right now that we think we need to be happy. We can stop chasing all the idols, and it can be a myriad of things in your life. You think, if I have that, then I'll be satisfied. If I have that, then I'll have joy. We can stop that, because you can have it in Christ, and it's guaranteed for you in Christ forever. Years ago, I I knew a professing Christian who said, quote, I need to have children to be happy, to be fulfilled. So she and her husband went to extreme measures, sinful measures, to have children, Now, this, my beloved, is not uncommon in the church today. Not uncommon at all. They were successful. God blessed them, even in their sinful endeavors, with babies. And yet she remained unsatisfied. She thought, that was it. If I can have children, that will fill the hole. That will bring satisfaction For years she had been enslaved to getting pregnant, how to get pregnant, when to get pregnant, and then she finally got pregnant and she was still enslaved, still unfulfilled because Christ was not her all in all. My beloved, knowing that one day you will hunger and thirst no more and that right now you can taste that in Christ enables us not to be enslaved, we are able to Walk freely in this life now. This is an incredible thought. That means you can pursue people, you can pursue work, education, leisure, you can pursue pregnancy, not because you need to, but because you want to. Not because you're enslaved to, because it's an idol, but because you think it's pleasing to God. And if you are free rather than bound, then you'll be satisfied with whatever God ordains. You'll be able to sing whatever God ordains is right baby or no baby that's takeaway number one takeaway number two because god promises to wipe away every sorrow-filled tear from our eyes guaranteeing that our eternal state will be free from pain and sorrow and regret you can in this life endure great suffering for the sake of the gospel. You can be obedient to the Word of God when in so doing you know it will bring pain into your life. You can live as an obedient, God-honoring Christian filled with service and sacrifice, suffering on this side because you know what? It ends. Oh, my beloved, if you've ever suffered, there's nothing like someone say, it'll be done now. One week, one month, one year. As long as you have a time frame in mind, even if it's long, it's out there, if you know the suffering ends, you can bear with that suffering. In other words, this life is not your one shot and out. It's not live your best life now, maximize comfort, minimize suffering because this is all you get. No, my love, time, in fact, eternity is on your side. Eternity is on your side. Suffering in this life will not last and when you know suffering will come to an end and that end is the presence of God who wipes away all your tears, then you can suffer well. You can persevere. You can be faithful. You can endure in the midst of great suffering for Christ's sake because your end is with God. Our brothers and sisters that we read about for centuries went through great hardship for the Lord, sacrificing, being tortured, and even giving their lives. And we read those accounts and we think, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I'm strong enough. I don't think I have the willpower. It wasn't willpower. It was perspective. It was their perspective. They understood that they could sacrifice and suffer in this life, that they could forsake, listen closely, building their kingdoms, and instead work hard and serve hard for the kingdom of God because in the end, they will suffer no more They knew that they could grow in holiness and share the gospel and make disciples at great costs, even to their own families. It was worth it to them because they knew that in the end, all that would be wiped away by God himself. It's such a precious image, isn't it? That God takes away those tears so they are no more to you. So we can stop chasing idols. We can be really courageous in our faith, suffering for the sake of the gospel. That means being bold in proclaiming and standing up for righteousness here in this place and certainly in San Jose because you're going to get it if you do. But I'll give you one more and this is probably the most tender and that's why I wanted to end on it. Um, I want you to be encouraged by what this passage reveals in, in a much larger sense. It reveals how much God wants you. You, sinner, Saved by grace, how much God wants you. The great work of God redeeming sinners like us, sealing us for the day of redemption, procuring for us perfect righteousness by what? Sacrificing his son. That's how much the Father wants you. That's how much the Father wants Desires you. He you say, "Yes, yeah, he desires it for his glory. Yes, the grace glorifies his name. But he also does it because he wants sinners like you saved by grace with him. It's God's deep desire for you to be saved and to dwell with him forever and ever, to commune with him. Not because he needs us. God doesn't need anyone. He is internally self-sufficient. But because." He wants us. Now, my beloved, it's good to be needed. It's better to be wanted. It's good to be needed. It is. But it's so much better to be wanted. Wanted for the sake of just who you are, particularly in a relationship. It means, my beloved, if this is true, that God wants you, and this passage reveals that, you can stop trying so hard to be wanted. Stop trying so hard to be liked to be affirmed by others, to be loved by others. In Christ, you are loved deeply and eternally. You're wanted by the creator of the universe. Well, that's good news. So instead of being so needy, always trying to fit in or make a name for yourself, you know what you can do? You can relax. I mean that in the biblical sense. You can relax and you can rest in the love relationship that God the Father has made with you through the blood of Christ. And you can walk with joy and freedom and ease in this life. Your cup is full. You're loved by God. You're wanted by God in Christ. Friends, Revelation 7 not only tells us who is saved, how they're saved, and the eternal blessings that come, and they are overwhelming. It gives us the tools to live in this life as the sealed, blood-bought, deeply loved, and deeply wanted of children of God that we are. Those are our tools So we can live differently in light of that. God saves sinners for His glory and our satisfaction. What a great and glorious God we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the magnificence of this chapter. We keep thinking, Father, that it can't get any better, and then it does. I ask, Lord, that You would use Revelation 7 to encourage my brothers and sisters to share the gospel widely with those in our mission field because you want to save many. To see, Lord, the great sacrifice that was required to redeem sinners like us, the blood of the Lamb, your Son, our Savior. And then help us to see clearly on a daily basis, Lord, what awaits us the eternal blessings which are real and true, your presence, your protection, your provision forever and ever. Oh, Father, I pray you would take these truths and press them so deeply in our hearts and minds that we would live as a different people, that we would live as that people sealed and made righteous and perfectly protected and provided for by you. Right now, today and every day until you call us home, until you come again in glory. Father, use this passage, I pray, to open our mouths and declare the gospel that we might see many more come into your great family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Be glorified in it, I pray, in Christ's holy name, amen.